Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone. I am on the line with Claire Monteleone. Claire is an associate professor at the University of Colorado Boulder. Claire, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. I'm super excited to have you on the show and looking forward to our conversation. We are, of course, going to dig into all of the amazing work you've been doing in the climate informatics field. But to get us started, why don't you share a little bit about your background and how you came to work at this confluence of data science, machine learning, and climate change? Yeah. So actually, I grew up in New York City and was involved in environmental activism in high school. We organized uh, the first Environmental Awareness Day at our high school. You know, this is in the late 90s. Mayor Dinkins uh, came and spoke. This was in New York City. Uh And I remember we served lunch on Frisbees, you know, so that they would be reusable. (laughs) So some fun images there. And then I came to college with science interests. There were majors such as environmental science and public policy, which I dabbled in. But then I did earth and planetary sciences. And I really wanted to understand climate change. You know, there were issues of acid rain and the ozone hole and certainly uh, global warming even back then. But I got more fascinated by the math of computer science. I had to take computer science to understand how these climate models worked but really got hooked in by things like logic and recursion and all the theoretical topics that fascinated me. So I studied AI machine learning for my PhD and really environmentalism was on the back burner as more of an activist area and not an area of research for many years. But then when I was finishing my postdoc and applying for jobs, I wrote about this idea of climate informatics because during grad school, I had seen bioinformatics emerge as really mm. revolutionizing various areas of biology by bringing in uh, machine learning. Right. And I really wanted to do the same for the study of climate change. And I was really lucky that along the way, there were more senior people, because I was a junior person, who believed in this vision. So one was my late boss at the Columbia Center for Computational Learning Systems, David Waltz. He hired me and he said, oh, climate informatics, this sounds great. We can hire a whole group on this if you'd like. (laughs) I said, I'd like to start a conference. And he said, go for it. And then also was able to find the right climate scientist with which to do the first paper with, who was um, Gavin Schmidt. He's now the head of the NASA office in New York City. And he's part of the IPCC. And we did a, a proof of concept showing that we could reduce uncertainty on an ensemble prediction and ensembles of course, are big in AI and machine learning and something I had been working on, but that's how predictions are made to the UN panel, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, by people running physics-driven models and then trying to interpret the high variance and spread from models from different countries. I mean, you've seen even just for storms that sometimes the European model says the cyclone is going to hit Florida, but the American model might say that it, it wouldn't. So, Together, we started working in this area, and then we launched a conference. I gave a tutorial at NeurIPS in 2014, trying to spur machine learners in in this field. And yeah, there have been some further developments, but the environmental science interest dates back to 
high school and then I've been doing computer science since late college. Awesome, awesome. And now when you took your your break from working in the environmental area and you were doing your doctorate, what was your focus there? Right. Yeah. So I was actually not on applied research at all. I was more in a theoretical area. So one area that was really interesting to me, which was inspired by how humans learn, was online learning, in particular when your data or the model that you would like to emulate changes over time. So learning in a game where the rules are always changing. Um, the analog I was thinking of at the time was the stock market, mm-hmm. right? But later it, it made a lot of sense to do this for climate change, right? We can't just regress a model and then expect that the distribution underlying the data is not changing. So I was really focusing on learning with non-stationarity, which there was some work, but there were a lot of open issues there. And I also worked on active learning as sort of my gateway to completely unsupervised learning. So what can you do when there's just really a limit on how much labeled data that you have? And also some work on privacy. Okay. Privacy as in differential privacy and things of that nature? Yeah. So differential privacy had come out in the theory community, but my colleague Kamalika Chowdhury and I published the first NARIPS paper on privacy-preserving machine learning where we took the algorithms of the time, logistic regression and support vector machine, and tried to re-engineer them to match differential privacy guarantees. It's not an area that I've pushed on in a while, but we did do, with past students and postdocs, did papers on semi-supervised privacy-preserving machine learning, Mm -hmm. privacy-preserving unsupervised learning, so privacy-preserving dimensionality reduction. And it kind of falls into my interest in doing AI for the service of social good. Okay. Of course, now I'm mostly focused on environmental areas that mm-hmm. have social good. You shared a bit of this in your background, but can you kind of lay out the landscape of your research interests and what your group is working on now? Is it primarily, is it all applied uh, in the environmental area? Are you also doing theoretical work? Do they? No, it's about half and half. Yeah, good question. There are some students doing purely theoretical, some purely applied, and then I really like to operate at the sweet spot. We have some interesting stories where, you know, I told you that we had been working on online learning with non-stationarity, so the data is varying with time. And this idea of tracking the best expert predictor or tracking a switching expert of the switching best expert And also parameter-free learning. We had an early parameter-free algorithm for learning the rate at which, you know, how bursty or how changing is this distribution. And we did that with respect to time. And that was the first proof of concept I did with the climate scientists um, to show that we could robustify the ensemble prediction of the IPCC climate models using our algorithms. But then I had a a student who, for his PhD, we looked at how you do this over space and time, because all the data is spatiotemporal. It'll vary over both latitude, longitude, and time. And so at AAAI, ways back, we published this algorithm in the context of climate models, this algorithm that would learn the level of sort of changeability or non-stationarity over both time and space while doing the learning task. So while trying to combine the climate model ensemble's predictions at now a whole time-space grid. 
And so this was just an algorithmic paper. There were no theorems. But if you looked at the field of online learning, it was pretty open to also have a spatial dimension or really any dimension. So then it turned out um, some finance people that I was talking about were interested in it for where the other dimension is markets in other countries. Okay. And so we did some proof of concepts in that domain. But this really came full circle. I was on sabbatical in Europe and I visited Nicolo Cesabianchi, who has co-written one of the main um, important textbooks on online learning. And with his PhD student, we talked about the theory. How would we evaluate algorithms and how would we even think about regret when you have online learners in a spatial grid with some interaction and some observation of the losses that the others are experiencing? What are sort of positive and negative results that you can get there? And we ended up publishing it last year in Algorithmic Learning Theory. So I do like trajectories that hit both the theory and the practice. And I'm in academia, so of course, um, that's good for the students' careers as well, right? They were trying to forge this new domain and were succeeding. There are people that have cross-disciplinary careers, someone who did a master's with me in CS and is now in a climate science lab doing a PhD. But in the meantime, while students are here, they do need to publish in machine learning venues. So I like to work at the sweet spot between the two. Nice, nice. Yeah, I think we want to get into your recent keynote at CVPR, but continuing the thread of your broad research interests, I'm wondering if you can speak about the just the opportunity in applying machine learning to climate informatics, climate change, environmental science in general. How do you think about the field? How do you taxonomize it? What's the research frontier? Um, yeah. Well, first, if some of your listeners are considering an application area, I would strongly recommend the study of climate change. I mean, there are a few unique things about it. So if we compare it, say, to biological applications, there's much more copious data here. The data has generally been collected by public missions of NASA, publicly disseminated by uh, USGS, NASA, and NOAA, and sometimes data that is simulated So the output of physics-driven models, we use as input for our machine learning because it encodes a lot of scientific knowledge and a lot of conservation laws from physics. And so even though we can't see the future, we have this artificial lens into the future via those climate simulations. So that's really unique. And I don't know of any other field where people have been working for 50 or 40 or, I don't know, since the late 60s. Mm -hmm. to simulate the thing that you're trying to predict. My colleagues in industry who want to predict whether a user is going to click on an ad, that's a really hard problem. And in climate, physics does give us some predictability and top physicists and meteorologists have been simulating the climate using mathematical models for years. So I heard a climate scientist say that more data that is simulated from climate models has been generated and stored than all the satellite retrievals to date. So we actually have a lot of simulated data, but there hasn't been a huge amount of effort of analyzing it in an automated way. Mm -hmm. So we're in a very data-rich scenario. And then if you think about it, it's probably the cheapest key to unlock these insights is to use data science and AI to find underlying patterns and latent structures that we can interpret. You don't hear that very often from a machine learning researcher that 
They're in a data-rich environment and data is not their primary challenge. Right. And then the other thing is interfacing with the domain experts. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of areas to climate change research, and I've tried some of them, but not all of them. But I know from experience that the climate scientists themselves, many of whom are climate modelers, are computer savvy. They're running the high-performance computing. They're writing the code. So it allows analytics to be this real value add that you can just plug in. Whereas if you're starting from scratch, and I you know, admire the work in other domains, but it's quite hard to start from scratch where it's hard to even speak the same language around computing. And it's pretty important. It's been pretty hot this summer. You may have seen a lot of wildfires last fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think it's pretty impactful. Given the, the rich history of climate scientists in computing, can you maybe talk a little bit about like how the the use of computing has evolved now that you're or, or we're kind of introducing machine learning and analytics? That, were they not doing that before? And what were the kinds of analyses that they were doing before? And how did they differ from what you would do introducing in more analytical and ML and AI methods? Yeah. So just like building any interdisciplinary field, we want to read the literature and welcome everyone into sort of a big tent. And so there's a whole field on statistical climatology and Bayesian methods were being used. The special sauce that machine learning brings beyond statistics or geospatial statistics is often algorithmic thinking. And any, anyone who's done a computer science degree will be aware of that and how you have an analysis of algorithms class in CS, but you don't necessarily have that in other departments. So making things more efficient, we could be talking about running time, we could be talking about data efficient, we could be talking about efficient with respect to the amount of labeled data that you have, which can often be the bottleneck in these real domains. So I think computer science did have a lot to add, but... We had to find the domain experts who were open to that. And then we also, it was very important to us to have a big tent and include statistics, geostatistics, statistical climatology, and a range of fields in data science. Actually, another just anecdote. So I got this job writing about climate informatics before ever having published about it, but hoping we could do for the study of climate change what bioinformatics had done for biology. and. Gavin Schmidt, who I eventually collaborated with, came to the CS department at Columbia looking for something. Now, he didn't know what exactly he was looking for. He's a climate scientist with lots and lots of data. But they got together this meeting of computer science professors that the chair had tapped, kind of voluntold, you need to go attend that meeting. Uh, So everyone was sort of a little bit bored or something. And I was really excited. Multiple people had forwarded it to me because they knew I was looking for this. And I was the kind of snarky person in the back of the room. Anytime Gavin explained something, I said, (laughs) have you tried machine learning for this problem? And so right after the talk, we literally got lunch right then and there. And that's actually when we started hashing out the idea for using this online learning that you would usually use to, say, predict the stock market, use it to robustify the predictions of the IPCC ensemble. <laughs> so now there's a range of you know systems and communication challenges. He was talking about also a challenge where, say you're trying to study an extreme event that lives in time and space, say a cyclone. So that's going to be a huge chunk of data in time and space. And you have 
these data servers at USGS or other publicly hosted sites, but even just the communications complexity of finding the boundaries in space and time of the pattern that you Mm -hmm. care about. He said he had a student that wrote a whole thesis on adaptive querying algorithms to just find the bounds of the data cube that you wanted. So there's a lot of systems challenges. I'll also mention Steve Easterbrook at University of Toronto, who now heads up, he's a computer science Mm -hmm. person in software engineering, and he now heads up their school of environment. But he did a study where he embedded himself in climate modeling teams. I think he went to the UK for a few months. He went to NCAR here in Boulder and observed them. Because when you're studying the process of software engineering, there's a lot of sociological aspects that come in. Who's sharing whose code? You know, it turns out there's a model of sea ice that's used in multiple of the different models. So the climate models from different countries are correlated. He also did a bug analysis and said that at the time, the bug rate was lower than Windows NT, which was actually kind of a not a very high bar. So there's a lot of different directions um, and different areas of computer science that can come to bear. Awesome. Awesome. So I suggested this before, but you recently delivered a keynote at the Earth Vision uh, workshop at CVPR. Tell us about the, the keynote and your focus there. Yeah, so that was an event, a workshop where it sounds like I wasn't an organizer, but it sounds like vision researchers are coming together around Earth, environmental, and climate change problems as well. And of course, they're looking at image data. I also wanted to step back and say that any geospatial data can be viewed as image data because what do you have? You have a matrix over longitude and latitude of some real value. It could be temperature, it could be precipitation. So there you've got an image as far as the back-end math is concerned. If you add time, you've got essentially video, right? And so all the ideas from Mm. computer vision can apply, and all the ideas that we develop for this kind of data can also apply back to computer vision. So I wanted to empower sort of domain experts around using unsupervised learning, because often you're not going to have a lot of annotated data for your domain. I showed some case studies, one in avalanche detection. And there the idea was that ground truth data literally was from humans trekking on the ground in very dangerous avalanche corridors in the Alps to observe whether the snow had the characteristics of an avalanche having fallen on it. So looking for avalanche deposits. Now, if you're looking at the satellite imagery products, you're just looking at snow and there's some subtle textural differences as to whether an avalanche has fallen. But our collaborators at Meteo France in France, which is like NOAA for France, hadn't found much skill even in humans labeling whether there had been avalanche deposits. So we had a situation which, as a machine learner or a computer vision researcher, is more general, which is that you're looking for a rare event. What does that mean? Huge class imbalance. It's binary classification, but you have very, very few positive labeled examples. But... In addition, there was just a limited set of labeled data, and we weren't going to be able to get any more. It was just what the people on the ground literally measured, this ground truth survey. And we didn't have some in-between product of images where humans had annotated it because they were still training the people, and it was also quite hard for them to do that. Right. So our thesis was, ultimately, you're going to do a semi-supervised pipeline because in the end, you want to classify avalanche. So there's some supervision as like the outer wrapper, but we wanted as much of the training as possible to be completely unsupervised. 
So you can learn an unsupervised model, say a variational autoencoder, and it would make sense intuitively that, look, if I train only on images of snow without avalanches, then I'd have a model for sort of the non-avalanche image or the non-avalanche state. And it would make sense that I could try to classify images by, on an unlabeled image, send it through the trained VAE. And if the VAE kind of struggles to reconstruct it, like it outputs a high reconstruction error where you're comparing the output of the network to the original input, then we could say above some certain threshold, that's an anomaly. And in this case, we were lucky that the anomalies were only avalanches because it was just different textures of snow. Okay. But if you think about where is the supervised learning needed for that pipeline, certainly tuning that hyperparameter, the threshold on reconstruction error above which you'll say that's an anomaly, that of course will need a labeled validation set because that's a hyperparameter for an ultimately supervised task. Mm -hmm. But the way I explained it to you at first was, okay, let's learn a VAE just on the negative examples. We certainly did that. And it definitely got a lift from our CNN supervised approaches that had to deal with the huge class imbalance. But it turned out that we said, you know what? We don't want there to be a bottleneck at the very beginning of our training where we have to look at the ground truth survey and compare it to images to find images and patches that don't have avalanches in them. Because then we're using up some of our label data. We can't use that in our validation set for hyperparameter tuning. Right. So our kind of twist or creative thought here was, you know what? Let's skip the supervised step at the beginning. Let's just lean on unsupervised learning. Let's just use all the satellite data we have, other than some holdout labeled set, to train the VAE. So we sort of argue that the supervision should only, if you have a limited amount of supervision, it should only be used in tuning your hyperparameter. Mm-hmm. And we surprisingly got a significant lift there, which at first seems counterintuitive because the first version of the autoencoder, you knew you were only training on, on clean snow without avalanche. But the idea is in both cases, whether it was only on the negative examples or on all the examples, you get your two VAEs. But in both cases, there's going to be that threshold hyperparameter for whether you're saying your reconstruction error is above a certain value. And in both cases, you do get to tune that on labeled data. And now the value of the threshold might be different when you've trained on all the data that also had some noise in it because it actually had avalanches, but you train it to properly label a labeled validation set. Mm. And so they can both perform as well as they can. It turns out that the one with entirely unsupervised training of the VAE performed better And so our conjecture on that is, in part, it's trained on more data, right? Right, right. But secondly, to the extent that there's a few rare examples in there with avalanche in them, that gives you kind of more of an exploration of the feature space. And so we view that as really a form of regularization, which helps your ultimate model to be more generalized. So it was a cool trick, and I think it can apply really in any setting where you have a major class imbalance and you don't want to use a lot of labeled data. And so did you you find that your margins were narrower, but the supervised training to find the threshold was, was it equally, were there any differences in the two cases in the ability to find the threshold? No, the threshold values were different, but the right. threshold finding procedure was the same. We used the same labeled validation set. Just like if you report results of any two algorithms in a paper, 
They each get their hyperparameters tuned independently, but on the same labeled validation data set. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the conjecture that the introduction of the avalanche images helped the VAE kind of learn texture is... Did you validate that in some way? It's, it's conjecture, but did you did you run any experiments to try to understand the kind of nuance there? Not directly. We did things like drill down and test only on even less imbalanced data sets like avalanche carters and the Alps that were known to have a lot of avalanches. And that kind of actually mm-hmm. increased the lift among the methods. But it would be interesting to try to derive. So I mean, another thing my group is really interested in is interpretability. The other paper I was going to talk about was about interpolations through latent space to bring two domains closer together called domain alignment. But you bring up a really interesting interpretability question that we can maybe look at in future work. Interesting. So is that the interpretability paper? Was that one that you also talked about at the... Yes. So um, this was a completely unsupervised method. And understanding why it worked so well brings in the idea of self-supervision as well. And this is an extremely general method for the task of downscaling. Now, that's the task coming out of climate, meteorology, earth sciences, weather, etc. And so down is the opposite of up. So in computer vision, we would call that the task is sort of like super resolution or up sampling. Mm-hmm. But to be very clear then for this audience, as I know your audience is AI folks, downscaling means I have some gridded data. Say I have a map of temperature, but I'm at a coarse scale. So there's fewer grid points for a given geographical (laughs) region than at the fine scale. And I'd like to infer a finer scale. That's what downscaling is called. So this is super general. I mean, we did proofs of concept for temperature and precipitation, but Of course, this could be applied to anything. Mm -hmm. And we appealed, actually, so Brian Gronke, who's the one who came here, did a a machine learning master's and then got radicalized around climate change and is now a PhD student (laughs) in Germany in climate science. He did spend one summer internship at Jupiter Intelligence, kind of a climate startup here in Boulder, just trying to use some of the super resolution techniques that were hot off the presses in computer vision. Like GANs and techniques like that? Yeah. Well, in the end, we'll mention um, normalizing flows that have kind of an actor-critic loss function but aren't GANs. I do have another student passionate about evaluating how GANs generalize, which is actually quite open. But (laughs) he found that these super-resolution techniques in computer vision would not do the best job at inferring and discovering the fine-grained detail that is so important in environmental domains. We all know that in-painting can work and you would maybe infer from the outside of an image what's inside an image, but we really have a multi-resolution scale in any climatological or environmental science problem. And so he instead appealed to domain alignment. There was a paper called Align Flow that was in the 2020 AAAI by Grover and others. I believe it was from Stefano Hermann's group at Stanford. And so normalizing flows is the next step after VAE, where a VAE does learn a distribution over your latent space, your compact representation, but the distribution is some variant of a Gaussian. Normalizing flows allow you to get much more complicated and interesting distributions over your latent space. So to match reality better. 
Now, you might have a prior that's simple, like an isotropic Gaussian, but you go through a series of invertible transformations to sort of complicate your distribution over the latent space. And one thing for, you can do downscaling, you can also do upscaling. There's this automatic cycle consistency that comes for free. There's not a cycle consistency loss function that's being optimized, but you have exact cycle consistency because the transformations that you're learning from one domain to the other are invertible. Okay. So the idea is you've got your coarse grain data, say, you know, temperature at a coarse grid over the continental U.S. You also do need examples of fine grain data, but you don't need pairing. You don't need to know that this is the temperature map at fine scale corresponding to this input at coarse scale. You just need independently identically distributed samples at both scales. They don't need to be paired. So that's different from what the field of statistical downscaling had been doing, where they did have methods, but they always required paired maps for training. So you just need samples from both domains. So now it's the same variable temperature, but the domains are coarse scale and fine scale. And then this align flow method, the idea is that there's a shared latent space and you'll learn a normalizing flow from one domain to the latent space and from the other domain to the latent space. But since these are invertible, that allows you to then go in any direction. So what you get is this really nice probabilistic unsupervised deep model where once trained, you can do what's called conditional sampling. So if the original goal was to take a coarse grid temperature map and feed it to the model, it'll map it down to the latent space and then map out to a fine grid map. And because you're sampling in the latent space, you can sample as many times. You can take conditional samples like we showed some coarse grid weather map. And then in our model, we could sample a bunch of like fine grained precipitation maps and then show it to experts. Do these look plausible? (laughs) But you can get a whole bunch Mm -hmm. of them, not just one. And are the samples conditioned on some tweakable parameter or are you just picking multiple samples? And So when I said conditioned, we're conditioning on the whole input image. So the input. Oh, you're saying what are the tweakable parameters? The tweakable parameters, the, I mean, the hyperparameters, as usual, um, trade off between your kind of fidelity, which is, again, sort of a GAN style loss, mm-hmm. versus your generalizability, which is looking at trying to minimize, uh, to it's, it's sort of a maximum likelihood score that compares okay. your distribution after all these complicated mappings to your prior. Because of course, we always favor simple priors in order to avoid overfitting. And so the trade-off is between complicating your prior so much that you're basically overfitting versus getting really good fidelity maps at the fine resolution, which does involve you know, evolving away from a very simple prior. Okay. But you could also take unconditional samples. So what does that mean? There's no input image to the model. I could just sample from this distribution I have over the latent space. Okay, now I get some point in the latent space. How do I interpret that? Mm-hmm. Well, we don't exactly know, but we can send it through the flow to get a coarse resolution image, send it through the flow to get a fine resolution image. Mm-hmm. And then we can also do interpolations. So Brian looked at two images at different times in one domain, mapped them to the latent space, and now there's this whole field on how should you walk through the latent space. But anyway... right. This gets into what are the geodesics of the posterior distribution you've learned over the latent space, and what is the efficiency of walks that are geodesic versus just walking in in a Euclidean-type path. But for each sample in the latent space, then you can generate 
a coarse resolution image of precipitation and a fine resolution image of precipitation. And so you've this allows for interpretability. You can say, how does the model interpolate between these two points of time at high and low resolution? So it's a really flexible, nice method. And mostly he just extended a line flow from AAAI, but he decided to use Glow for the normalizing flow, which had shown great success on celebrity faces, right? Which is where all the GANs are trained <laughs> and wanted to see if we could get some good fidelity around weather. Nice. That last uh, example of pulling the samples reminded me of the interview I did with Sasha Lucioni on the, her visualizing climate impact with GANs. Awesome. So both of those are papers that you worked on and presented at the workshop. So the, the proceedings are in ACM because it, our climate informatics workshop turned into a conference last year. And we actually have had archivable proceedings for the past six or so years. But yeah, I talked about those collaborative works with my students and others at this keynote Saturday. Awesome. Awesome. And you mentioned climate informatics and the conference, or there's a new conference that you're part of forming climate informatics. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So Gavin and Schmidt and I had presented this paper. Actually, Jan LeCun was an early supporter. I went to this invited workshop that he used to run called the Learning Workshop at Snowbird. And you can choose to either submit something as a poster or a talk. And I was like, oh, this is so edgy and weird. I don't know if people are going to like it. I'm just going to ask for a poster. But he really liked it and said, would you be willing to give a talk? So we started presenting things in mainstream machine learning. And I even applied to run a workshop at like either NeurIPS or ICML on AI for climate change. But the community wasn't ready. It was early days. This was definitely prior. It was maybe around 2014. But anyway, so we decided that we wanted a fully interdisciplinary community. And so we wanted to have a standalone event. So that's why we didn't run this as a workshop at an existing climate or geosciences event or machine learning event. So we launched in 2011 at the New York Academy of Sciences. There was huge participation and very international. It was challenging because Hurricane Irene was bearing down on New York. So in the middle of the technical discussions around climate change, people's hotels were getting evacuated, their flights oh, wow. were getting canceled. And so, yeah, every year we've persisted. We were in Boulder for many years before I even moved here because I used to be at Columbia. And one year there was this huge flooding event in 2013. And we had to arrive for the conference right after that and figure out hotels and everything. And I've also learned a lot about building a community. When we had it in Boulder, we always had a hike. One time when we had to avoid a rattlesnake that provided like a real bonding experience for folks. Um, and of course, beer in the beautiful nature of Boulder was great for that. And then in 2019, we went international. So the workshop went to Paris in 2019, Oxford in 2020, which turned out to be virtual. And so since 2015, we've been running these hackathons. So a climate scientist will bring up a challenge problem and a data set. And then a bunch of teams will be formed with students and all sorts of people that want to participate. Industry is really interested in coming and sponsoring mm -hmm. and meeting our students. And we make sure each team is interdisciplinary. So we've had hackathons on forecasting El Nino's Southern Oscillation, on Arctic sea ice extent, and storm intensity tracking for tropical cyclones. This year, we're most likely doing something on wildfire. It's still in development. And that event will kick off in early September and it'll be in Boulder slash online. 
And we are transitioning the Climate Informatics Conference to be a springtime event, and it'll be held in Asheville, North Carolina at the NOAA Center and some other places, venues around town in spring 2022, date TBD. Mm Mm-hmm. I think the big sort of validation of climate informatics, partly universities like such as University of Toronto started hiring professors in climate informatics. So that's really interesting. And then the World Economic Forum made a call to action in 2018. They put out a report on AI for the earth and they named climate informatics as a big priority and and cited us. And then, yeah, the next big thing is that we've finally launched a journal where people in this whole spectrum, all of data science and AI and all of study of climate change and the environment are welcome and encouraged to submit where we feel that it has been sort of a gap. If you're not publishing only an algorithm, you also care about the application. That's not always the best to publish in an ML venue. Right. And I'm hearing from domain experts that they can innovate on methods, but they still have to stick it in the methods section, which mostly gets ignored by the reviewers in the domain journals. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this is open access. You can also get an extra badge for sharing your data, your notebooks, your reproducible workflows, and another extra badge for sharing your data. Okay. Awesome. It sounds like an exciting time in the field. Lots going on. Maybe we can close out by having you share a little bit of what you're most excited about looking forward. Yeah. So I'm broadening from climate change where we hope that we can make some change, and hopefully we can, to things that communities can do to prepare and really thinking about environmental resilience. And this brings in infrastructures. It also brings a lot of social issues. So if we talk about a warning system for forecasting an extreme storm or how a wildfire is going to spread, we really want to represent all voices in and all stakeholders in thinking about how these systems should work to interface with society. And we also want to recognize a legacy of environmental injustices where you may have communities that have been put near factories where they already have poor air quality, there could be increased instances of asthma or other risk factors. And so if we're warning about something like wildfire, which has huge air quality degradations, we really want to prioritize vulnerable communities first. So it's been really exciting. We're in a college of engineering here at CU that is the first that I'm aware of that has a funded center called RISE, Resilient Infrastructure with Sustainability and Equity. So just bringing environmental equity and social justice right into an engineering school, I think that's really important for any addressing of climate change, both within our country and then also internationally, how you have countries bearing the brunt of warming that you know aren't even emitting very much. So um, I'm, I'm really excited um, to bring all these interests full circle around inclusion, equity, and climate change. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Claire, thanks so much for taking some time to share a bit about what you're doing. Very cool stuff. It was great. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.
All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.